sickle. Bleeding saints and forest witches, the past unburied, the books unsealed, the old celebration returning. Hello and welcome to my study. Please come in and have a seat. All the books around you here are used to research our show and the individual to my right, along with uh, managing domestic duties, serves as our reader for any passages that will be directly quoted from the sources. Uh, Her name is Mrs. Carswell. Hello. Well, we hope you all had fun on Halloween, despite restrictions you might have been under because of the plague that still seems to be hanging on. As I predicted, no kids dared come up here for candy. Uh, Unless they came late. I didn't stay too long because we actually recorded our episode that night. Late. It was a bit of a push, but we wanted to get something extra out for the holiday. Uh, An odd little trick episode slipped in amongst the treats. That's why it was shorter than usual. And I apologize for my terrible Scottish ghost accent. I wanted to do it over, but we were rushing. Oh, well, I took that whole part out, and it wasn't really that bad. Maybe the take you left in wasn't Uh, so bad. I took the whole part out. I I know you took some parts out because it was so short, but you did leave in the Scottish ghost. I'm not sure what show you're talking about, but that part was cut out, and the show wasn't really short. It was uh, close to our usual length, maybe just shy of 40 minutes. That's news to me. It sounded closer to 15, but it had an unusual pace. So I could be a bit off. Unusual pace? All the music passages, or whatever that was, without any talk. Scottish music, different sounds. I thought you were doing it for effect, but it seemed strange. You just sitting there recording music when I thought we should be recording our parts. I thought you were falling asleep, but the red recording light was on. I honestly don't know what you're talking about. Did you listen to the correct link? I double-checked what was uploaded to Stitcher. We were both tired working uh, I so. wasn't sleeping. You were the one I had to wake up when it was time for retakes. I passed out in that chair downstairs. I was just going to the kitchen for tea, and then there were all these distractions. I had to sit down. I guess I was a little turned around. I, I don't know who arranged those knives on the counter. But... The clocks. You you did reset the clocks. Because of the power outage. Maybe your computer switched to battery and you didn't notice? I think it was around two. Two hours, according to my phone. We must have talked for two hours. Sitting in the dark and talking. The two of us. You kept saying something I couldn't get. Maybe in Scottish or Gaelic, I guess? Me? Someone was talking. I don't want to talk about this. Ever. No. No. Episode 57, Witchcraft in Southern Italy. I am your host, Al Reidenauer, and this show, Bone and Sickle, explores the intertwining of horror and folklore in a historical context. 
I started the show as a way to further explore this uh, area of intersection after writing my book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas. Bowdoin Sickle only exists thanks to the generosity of our Patreon donors. Um, we've had some uh, new expenses arise with the show production that are a bit troublesome, so if you've uh, ever considered supporting us, this would be a great month to help out and to start enjoying those uh, short Patreon extra episodes. More on all that at the end of our show. This lyric is taken from a 15th century incantation allegedly spoken by Italian witches as they applied the flying ointment that would transport them to the Sabbath. The translation... Ointment, ointment, carry me to the walnut tree of Benevento, above the water and above the wind and above all other bad weather. The words are from the testimony of Matteuccio di Francesco, tried as a witch in Rome in 1428. Described as a mixture of bat's blood, vulture fat, and the blood of a newborn baby, this is probably the first reference to witches flying to the Sabbath, and certainly the first to mention magical ointment applied for that purpose. Transformed into a cat or a housefly for the journey to Benevento, Matteuccia claimed that she was accompanied by a spirit named Lucifello to what were called the Games, a common term used for these gatherings before we began calling Sabbaths or Sabbaths only in the 20th century. The charges raised had been influenced by the sermons of the Franciscan Bernardino of Siena, who had been preaching in Matteuccia's hometown of Todi, the year of the trial. Bernardino had introduced the term witch and suggested the sentence of burning at the stake for those accused of sorcery, which sadly turned out to be Matteuccia's fate. Bernardino had also mentioned the idea that it was in Benevento, a city about 30 miles east of Naples in the Campania region, where witches from throughout Italy would gather, and more specifically, that it was under a certain tree, which was later identified as a walnut. Tradition often places the tree on the banks of the Sabato River running through the town, but other locations have been suggested, perhaps in the outlying countryside, as the entire province is also called Benevento. In any case, the site is widely recognized throughout the Italian-speaking world as a gathering place uh, for witches, in the same way that Germany's Brocken Mountain, mentioned in our uh, first Walpurgisnacht episode, was a destination for witches in German-speaking lands. You're hearing La Strega, or The Witches, an 1813 composition adapted by Niccolo Paganini from a melody in Franz Sussmeier's ballet, The Walnut Tree of Benevento. It was a sort of signature piece for Paganini, part of the uh, diabolical image the performer cultivated, as discussed in our Deals with the Devil episode. 
The original ballet was probably inspired by the publication in 1810 of a poem called The History of the Famous Walnut Tree of Benevento, one which reworks established traditions regarding the tree as a rendezvous point for, as it says, A great number of witches, wizards, and devils from hell while adding certain new elements, including that of an immense snake that curls within the tree's branches. Though the local soccer team goes by the moniker Benevento Witches, and there is a small witchcraft museum opened only in 2019, what's really solidified the city's reputation was the locally distilled herbal liqueur Strega, that is, witch liqueur. Created in 1833 by Giuseppe Alberti as a digestive to serve at his cafe on the town square, Strega is now distributed worldwide and resembles somewhat its uh, Italian rival, Galliano, uh, thanks to its bright color, or perhaps chartreuse, uh, thanks to its uh, complex taste. Um, a taste, by the way, which oddly owes nothing to the walnut. Strega's label features an etching of the famous tree ringed by dancing witches, and it's been marketed as a recipe originally provided to Alberti by a grateful witch whom he saved from falling from a tree. A uh, recipe which has the effect of a love potion, according to tradition, and also to this uh, clip from the uh, 1940 Ginger Rogers film, Kitty Foyle. What's Strega? Oh, it's an Italian liqueur. There's a picture of a witch on the bottle. They say that if two people drink it together, they'll never drink it apart. And now for an election flash. How cool. Republican headquarters have just conceded the state of Pennsylvania to Roosevelt. He'll never make it. Wait until the returns come in from the Middle West. But to return to the witchcraft history. Uh, from the 1540 interrogation of Bellezza Orsini by the Holy Office of Rome, there's a second mention of a flying ointment made from the blood of unbaptized children and of a flight to Benevento for... A great party and game. Where those gathered will... Do all we wanted in sin and renounce baptism and faith and take the devil for lord and patron and do what he wants and nothing else. Orsini, who'd worked for years as an herbalist and healer, had been dragged into court by the family of a deceased patient whose uh, loved ones attributed the death to her poison. Her confession, however it was extracted, uh, would have been enough to send her to the stake, but she cheated her judges by cutting her throat with a nail found in her cell. What really locked down the Benevento story was a 1634 essay on the magical walnut tree of Benevento written by the town's chief physician, Pietro Peperno. He was the first to mention the species of tree around which the witches gathered and named some of them, including Sorceress Alcina from the village of Pietralcina, four miles distant, and Violante da Pontecorvo, who was said to worship Diana under the branches of the tree. Piperno also relates, uh, as true, a folktale which we'll hear in a retelling by uh, Charles Godfrey Leland from his 1892 book, Etruscan Roman Remains in Popular Tradition. 
the stories about a hunchback by the name of Lambert. One night, returning home by the light of the moon, he passed near the great walnut tree of Benevento, where he saw a great assembly of people, men and women in fine array, dancing and singing jolly. But their song was strange and somewhat monotonous, for it was merely, Welcome Thursday and Friday. Thinking they were a party of reapers, by way of helping them on, Lambert, catching the tune, sang in rhythm, and Saturday and Sunday too. Amused by his improvisation, the revelers not only invited him to dance and feast, but magically snatched away his hump. At which Lambert screamed out, Jesus, Virgin Maria! Then the whole enchantment vanished. Lights, plates, dishes, all the splendor and glory of the festival had gone. The tale circulated in a number of iterations throughout Italy, with some 19th century versions featuring two hunchbacked brothers and setting the story on Saturday night with Saturday Sunday being the verse sung. But the wee hours between Thursday and Friday seem a bit more traditional for gatherings under the Benevento walnut. The bulk of Piperno's essay, however, is drawn from material reworked from a 9th century hagiography of St. Barbato, one which describes the saint's interactions with the pagan Lombards of Benevento, also called Longobards, that is, uh, long beards. The Lombards were a Germanic people that drove out the Greeks who'd previously occupied the uh, southern part of the peninsula. The story Piperno tells takes place in the mid-600s when the Byzantine emperor Constance II is trying to retake the territory. Though nominally Christian, the Lombard prince Romuald I was known to privately cling to his old pagan faith, uh, something he promised to abandon if St. Barbato's god would drive back the Byzantine armies. When the Greeks, for some reason, seem to miraculously withdraw, Romuald appoints Barbato bishop, while uh, still privately clinging to his paganism and worshipping a small golden figure of a serpent. But he is betrayed by his wife, who presents the statue to the bishop, who promptly melts it down and fashions it into a chalice for the Eucharist, and further emphasizes his point by then chopping down the walnut of Benevento, which was supposed to be the center of uh, lingering pagan rites. To uh, understand what sort of pagan rites were supposed to have been going on around the tree, we need to look for a moment at the history of the word carousel, which comes from an Italian word meaning... Little battle. That is, a sort of game like jousting in which horsemen would race in circles like the wooden figures on the uh, fairground attraction. In the case of Benevento, Paperno says, they would charge around the walnut in which hung the remains or hides of goats or sheep and attempt to spear or slash these. As the Lombards worshipped Odin, the game was interpreted as a sort of rite dedicated to him, and scraps of the animal torn off in the frenzy were said to be ritually consumed. As a form of sport, the carousel described seems plausible, and trees were certainly connected to Germanic worship and Odin to the devil in Christian thought. 
So the uh, ritual consumption of bits of the animal brings it closer to the meaning of games used to describe the uh, witches' uh, sabbats. At least this is all Piperno's interpretation, as he conceives of the Lombard Rite as a prototype for the uh, activities of witches in his day. By 1903, another element came into the mix when the foundations of a first-century temple to Isis were discovered in Benevento. The uh, parish monsignor and director of the cathedral library, Gaetano Congiano, who had never really liked Benevento's reputation for witch superstitions, began writing a series of essays in 1927, which attempted to detach the local history of witchcraft from the uh, homegrown practices of the Lombards and reframing it instead as an imported devotion to Isis. He uh, pointed to an urn discovered within the temple, which was decorated with snakes, and this for him was clear evidence of serpent worship predating the Lombards. Rather than Isis, however, it's Diana who's uh, much more frequently associated with Benevento's witch history. Much of this is due to the work of Charles Leland, from whom he heard the earlier hunchback story, um, long before uh, Margaret Murray expounded her um, now discredited theories in her book The Witch Cult of Western Europe, Leland was suggesting that uh, Renaissance accounts of witchcraft represented the survival of the old religion, that is, uh, one practiced in pre-Christian days. In his uh, 1899 book, Araria or the Gospel of the Witches, Leland suggests that Italian witches actually worshipped Diana, who, along with her consort, Lucifer, had birthed a daughter, Araria, who served as a sort of messianic teacher of the witches. Though this has uh, served as fertile uh, mythology for Italian-oriented neo-pagan groups, as in the practice of Stargaria, founded by Raven Gramassi in the, the 1980s, the uh, historicity of uh, Leland's claim is uh, widely rejected. The connection between Benevento's witches and Diana certainly owes a great deal to her long-standing place as a uh, pagan nemesis in Christian thought. As uh, early as 906 AD, the abbot of the German town of Prüm, in his uh, Canon Episcopi, wrote of... Certain wicked women... Who? In the hours of the night, they ride upon certain beasts with Diana, the goddess of pagans, and in innumerable multitude of women, and in the silence of the dead of the night, to fly over vast spaces of earth and obey her commands, as of their lady, and are summoned to her service on certain nights. Clerics had a habit of substituting Roman names for uh, local gods or spirits to make them more relatable to their uh, Latin reading audience. For instance, an 11th century update on this passage from Germany, uh, one that I used in my Krampus book, corrects uh, the usage of Diana, replacing it instead with the local goddess or spirit, that is the Germanic Holda. Whether or not she stands in for another spirit or not, Diana or... The Lady of the Game... It's frequently mentioned even before the 15th century witch hunts as being the center of what were called the games from the uh, Latin ludus, uh, the word used for Roman festivals which combined revels and ritual. Another factor reinforcing the connection between Benevento's witches and Diana is the regional word used for witches, Yanara, often said to derive from Dianara, uh, a priestess of Diana. 
In his classic, The Golden Bough, James Fraser expounds upon the notion put forward by certain classical authors that Janus, the Roman god of beginnings, transitions, and doorways, had a female counterpart, Jaina, that would be Yana in the local pronunciation, who would be the equivalent to Diana. Another somewhat related etymology derives the name Yanara from their association with doorways, uh, similar to the northern European night hags discussed in Nightmares and Dullabies, the Yanara were known to slip under bedroom doors in the form of vapor or breeze. For this reason, brooms and bags of salt were left by the doorways to redirect the Yanara's intent, as they would be compelled to count the straws in a broom or grains in the bag of salt. Should they manage to gain entrance, it's also said they would sit at the bedside counting the hairs on the sleeper's head. If they accomplished this before dawn, they were free to kill the sleeper, usually by smothering. There are other activities that are typical for witches of the north that we've discussed, stealing or souring milk and cheese, uh, tangling people's hair as they sleep, or the hair of livestock or braiding their tails, uh, stopping the milk of breastfeeding mothers, or killing or deforming the newborn, and sometimes sucking human blood by night. What you're hearing are bits from the 2015 Italian film called Yanara, released here as The Witch Behind the Door. It's shot in the province of Benevento and has to do with cases of disappearing children investigated by police suspecting pedophilia. A young, menaced couple expecting a child and so on. Alongside this earlier notion of witches as supernatural beings who visit like uh, vampires by night to drain blood and energy and waste human resources, the concept of the Yanara also embraces the later inquisitorial notion of witches, not as monsters, but as uh, humans following a diabolical path. In this aspect, the Yanara attend Sabbaths where they mock and profane religious symbols, worship a demonic figure in the form of a black goat or hideous dog seated upon a throne. We've discussed the ointment that allows them to fly, but in some folktales, such as the Hare Prince, collected in Italo Calvino's Italian folktales, the uh, witch must anoint her hair with human blood to accomplish this flight. Charles Leland's Etruscan Roman Remains in Popular Tradition includes a poem describing this uh, flight, one he attributes to a uh, Dom Piccini, but I suspect maybe his own composition. In Benevento, a nut tree stands, and thither by night from many lands, over the waters and on the wind, come witches flying of every kind, on goats and boars and bears and cats, some upon broomsticks and some like bats, howling, hurtling, hurrying, all come to the tree at the master's call. This bit of music is a 16th century form of dance called La Volta. I include it because it's supposed to have been the dance of choice at these uh, witchy revels. 
1668, Johannes Pretorius, whom we've heard from in our Walpurgisnacht episode, mentions this dance as part of Sabbaths in Germany, France, and Italy, describing it as... A foreign dance in which they seize each other in lewd places, and which was brought to France by conjurers from Italy. A whirling dance full of scandalous, beastly gestures and immodest movements. As well as the ancient night hag and the inquisitor's servant of the devil, the witches of Benevento sometimes absorbed elements from fairy lore as we hear in a testimony provided in 1588 to the Sicilian Inquisition by a woman only identified as the fisherwife of Palermo. At the age of eight, she claimed to have made her first flight astride a goat to... A land called Benevento, which belongs to the Pope and is situated in the kingdom of Naples. There was a field, and in its center, a platform with two chairs... On one was a red teenage boy, and on the other, a beautiful woman, whom they called the Queen, and the man was the King. She's asked to renounce God and the Virgin Mary and bow and worship to the royal couple, which she does, after which... They made the tables and ate and drank, and thereafter the men had intercourse with the women, and with her repeatedly in a short period of time. During these gatherings, she's also provided with a magical elixir for the sick to be sold for profit. Um, Similar stories were told by other folk healers as a way of elevating their status and their services with a supernatural merit. With uh, stories such as this, where there's no conflict with neighbors or emphasis upon the devil, the person making such claims would usually be encouraged to recognize it all as a mere dream or hallucination thereby avoiding the stake. Something the uh, fisherwife of Palermo, thankfully, was eventually persuaded to do. To the city of Naples now to look at a few witch legends. The first is that of the Witch of Port Alba, the port here being one of the old city gates for which the neighborhood is named. She's also called Maria La Rosa, Maria the Red, for the uh, color of her hair. There are different versions of the story, but in all, the key event takes place on her wedding day in 1600, when some mysterious force blocks her groom en route to join her at the church. For some reason, it went quite beyond me, this is taken as a sign that Maria is a witch, and she's tried, found guilty, and sentenced not to the stake, but to something even more senselessly cruel— She is to be publicly starved to death while hanging in a cage suspended from the arch of the gate. It sounds as if she was supposed to have been left there after death, which means I might have included a legend in our Chibit episode, I suppose. A hook, which is still visible in the masonry, is pointed out as evidence that this is a true story. And her ghost is said to haunt the neighborhood on moonless nights. From Mount Faito on Naples' southern outskirts, we have another odd story. Here's a bit on that from uh, Arthur Norway's 1901 book, Naples, Past and Present. There were witches there, sure enough. They had bells tied to their heels and were leaping like monkeys from one tree to another while the bells tinkled and the air was full of weird noises. Fortunately, 
The investigators carried guns, and the witches, seeing that their enemies were ready to shoot, decided to come down, whereupon they received such a trouncing with sticks that they learnt better manners and left the neighborhood at peace. Another legend is attached to the slopes of Vesuvius, where, after a magma spill in 1858, locals began reporting dreadful screams, imagined by some to be those of damned souls trapped within the volcano. After an armed posse was sent to investigate to no avail, a witch by the name of Matavona was consulted to resolve the problem, which she seems to have rather easily done through the recitation of a few arcane spells. Within the greater city of Naples, the town of Ecolano, which uh, sits aside the excavations of Herculaneum, is considered a particularly powerful spot for witches, with nearly 200 contemporary folk healers now plying their trade in the rag market neighborhood where used clothing is also sold. You get a two-for-one. Moving out of the realm of legend now, I want to take a look at the ongoing history of witchcraft in southern Italy. Um, but uh, first, some terminology. Stegoneria is the modern Italian word for witchcraft of the folkloric type. Uh, Stegeria was an older word embraced in neopaganism for a practice based on historical models, but uh, usually uh, with customary references to uh, Catholic saints and prayers and so forth, removed thanks to a certain hostility Leland and other influential figures held toward the church. But uh, traditional Italian practitioners of magic, uh, folk healers that is, would never call themselves strega. The word would be derogatory. It's used either by those who regard the activities as genuinely effective and evil or used sarcastically by skeptics. Instead, practitioners of folk magic are referred to as, uh, in Italian, as healers, wise people, uh, holy people, or uh, fixers, that is, uh, the last is uh, fatuchiera, which seems the most common, with the word for spell being related literally being a fix, uh, fatura. Fatuchiera are rarely men. They may specialize in a particular cure or problem or possess a wider repertoire. Particular magic formulae and the power to use them is uh, something that's passed down within a family, uh, usually on a significant occasion like on Christmas Eve or St. John's Eve. And once passed on, the elder practitioner must cease practicing. Along with uh, health concerns, romance is, of course, a common issue bringing a client to a fatuquera. Uh, to gain love, there are innumerable charms that might be hidden in the bed of the intended, or dissolving a lover's bond is accomplished with a handful of salt tossed into the sea to uh, likewise dissolve. And in the um, 1895 book, Naples in the 90s, by Edmund Rolfe, I find a more entertainingly uh, grisly spell, to, uh, one to return unfaithful lovers, uh, in which the uh, fatuquiera goes at night to the cemetery, digs up with her nails the body of an assassin, with her left hand cuts off three joints of the ring finger, then reduces them to powder in a bronze mortar. Mixed with holy water, it's sprinkled on the path of the lover's house. And a, another uh, potent powder mentioned in the same context is... Made by scraping the left humerus of a dead priest. Sangre Christ, attack, ma vi devascar. Sangre Christ, sangre gelato, ferme, che mi raggia attaccata, attacca e non lo so. Quando ha fatto tutto quello che ha detto, 
You're hearing a spell spoken during a ritual unique to southern Italy, as far as I know, the rite of the chair, in which a chair, ideally one obtained from a church, is balanced on one of its four legs and spun, the motion causing a similar whirling confusion and headache in the victim. This uh, audio is from one of um, several intriguing documentary shorts about folk magic in southern Italy made by Luigi Di Gianni in the late 1950s. Di Gianni worked with uh, the anthropologist Ernesto De Martino, who specialized in such things, and uh, was mentioned in uh, our discussion of the uh, Tarantella phenomenon in our Pied Piper episode. I'll link some of their films in the show notes and Patreon. This sound, also from the documentary, is that of a fatukera hammering nails into the skinned head of a lamb representing the intended victim. A bit of black magic, often done much less dramatically, with a lemon uh, or sometimes a head of garlic which is uh, stuck with pins. Usually the object will be baptized, that is, given the name of the victim. And later in the film, the object is tossed into a lake. But in other cases, it may be burned or buried, uh, ideally near the enemy's house. I also find um, a 1903 newspaper story from Florence describing mysterious noises coming from a well in which was found an array of magical implements, including... A lamb's heart pierced with 50 needles. The heart was wrapped in a stamped addressed envelope, upon which the address of a young girl living in the neighborhood was written... And a dead toad, which was also pierced with 50 needles, the toad being tied with a lock of woman's hair. All possibly quite effective, as the story notes. That two days before the discovery was made, the girl's relatives received a letter from San Francisco, whither the girl had recently emigrated, stating that she was on her deathbed. And a 1928 story from Rome mentions a handbag discovered on a bus containing... A small cardboard box containing a bleeding heart, pierced with a number of pins. And even more recently, in 2009, the bomb squad was called out in uh, the uh, southeastern Apulian town of Sorbo when a mysterious round object was dug up from a garden, not a bomb, but a bundled lemon stuck with pins. Dangerous in its own way, I suppose. You're hearing a bit from the Italian horror film The Binding, also set in the south, in Apulia again, and involving a young couple visiting the husband's superstition-drenched hometown. There's an incident of Tarantella possession, hints of a blood rite, and other things you'd expect from a southern Italian folk horror. Binding, or fascinatura, related to our word fascinate, is a key element of Italian witchcraft. A victim brought under control through binding may suffer from bound blood, slowing the life processes and causing weakness and fatigue and headache, but um, as uh, Ernesto de Martino says in his 1959 classic, Magic in Southern Italian Societies, Its characteristic feature is the experience of an indomitable and ominous force. 
Rather than specific spells, the most common cause of binding is the evil eye, or malochio. The person with this peculiar trait is known as a yetitore, and needn't be a witch or fatukera. The gaze is traditionally described as piercing or possibly even seductive, as in this old Calabrian song. <laughs> called the window of the Yetatora. It's often attributed to uh, powerful individuals, businessmen, or gangsters, or even religious figures. Uh, Pope Pius IX was said to possess the evil eye. And throughout the late 1800s, stories circulated describing disasters that occurred in the wake of his travels. But the destructive gaze can also come from people who seem quite ordinary, and it can be unintentionally wielded, as I guess we'd hope would be the case for the Pope. And this is because its cause is something quite universal. It's the gaze of envy. A uh, good example from a good film comes from a 1963 production directed by Brunello Rondi, a screenwriting partner of Fellini's. It's called Il Demonia, the Demoness. Nasca così io primo figlio. The uh, plot is set in motion in a scene in which the spurned heroine directs her envious gaze upon the wedding of the man who's rejected her. She's soon ostracized from her tiny rural village as a witch and eventually forced into an exorcism during which she contorts herself into a spider walk a full decade before Linda Blair demonstrated the trick in The Exorcist. This uh, film, by the way, features quite a number of uh, folk rituals, which are shot in a neo-realist sort of documentarian style, and not surprisingly names Ernesto de Martino in its credits as an anthropological advisor. Um, I'll link it in the show notes. But back to the evil eye. Its cause, at least metaphorically, is described as a dryness of the eye, that is, a craving for wetness, a quality equated in Mediterranean countries with uh, fertility and fatality. Therefore, those over-brimming with this quality are particularly at risk, whether it be pregnant women and newborns and young brides or even young livestock. If you think you may have been affected by the evil eye, you should consult an old Italian lady who on Christmas night, um, ideally, would perform a ritual to clarify the issue, something involving three drops of oil in a dish of water and how the oil spreads or doesn't. If you are worried about being subjected to the evil eye, as absolutely everyone in southern Italy seems to be, there is no shortage of measures you can take against it. Even the Holy Mother seems to have been worried about it and therefore hung a protective coral charm on the child savior's neck. At least this was what's uh, represented in a 15th century painting, the Madonna of Senegalia by uh, Piero del Francesca. And coral is still sold as a charm against the malocchio. It's uh, particularly efficacious, it's said, because the blood-red color represents fatality, uh, even better if it's carved into the shape of a horn, which is symbolic of a phallus, which is about as much vitality as you can get. Um, and Naples is awash with these coral horns, as well as plastic imitations looking for all the world like small red chilies, making the uh, hand gesture metalheads know as devil horns. That is, the uh, monocornuta is also said to be helpful, but uh, charms representing this in uh, silver or plastic or gold are also useful. The same can be said for the hand gesture known as the fig, the monofica, 
in which the thumb is clenched under the forefinger, representing male and female genitals engaging. Hunchbacks, represented as dapper, top-headed men, known as uh, scartellati, uh, sometimes with their lower bodies represented as coral horns, are also popular charms, as are scissor charms, which cut the binding power horseshoes because iron brings luck, as well as representations of garlic, fennel, and parsley, all lucky. And the number 13, that's also very lucky in Naples. Merchants selling these wares are clustered in Naples' historic center, where flamboyantly costumed characters circulate in the streets, touting various services against the Molochio and offering on-the-spot blessings, uh, swinging about little incense pots and crying sho-sho, something like shoo-shoo, to drive off bad luck, as you can hear. The expression even made its way into a popular Neapolitan song from 1953 by Nino Taranto. These odd characters also enter businesses expecting a tip after blessing the establishment on the same model, it seems, as the sort of unsolicited window washer. Their costumes are designed in a sort of mock imperial style, decorated with metals and charms, plenty of charms, and lots of garlic and fennel, and they usually wear top hats, like the hunchback scartolati, whose look they seem to imitate. They represent a species of traditional street figure of Naples known as the Pazziella, and their comic spiels and antics seem to be a uh, vestige of the days of the traveling Montebanks and the uh, Commedia dell'arte performances discussed in our uh, Plague Doctor episode. This sort of aggressive commercialization and exploitation of magical beliefs converge into crime. I've uh, sorted through quite a number of stories involving crime and Italian magic, but uh, for brevity, uh, we'll detail just one, the very best, to uh, close out our show. It's uh, sort of Italy's answer to Sweeney Todd, that is, the case of Leonardo Cianciulli. She was not a healer or faticera herself, but her grisly deeds were prompted by a visit to one. At some point before 1939, Cianciulli was told by a fortune teller that each of her three children would die. This would be grim enough, but somehow, and we don't know what part the fortune teller may have played here, Cianciulli became convinced that she needed to take part in some sort of witchy exchange, offering the lives of three other human beings to preserve the lives of her three children, particularly that of her son, Giuseppe, who had just joined the army as war was looming. And so, between 1939 and 1940, the sweet old shopkeeper ended up killing three acquaintances and turning them into tea cakes and soap. We know the details thanks to uh, court testimonials and Chanchuli's histrionically titled memoir, An Embittered Soul's Confessions. The first of these, Faustina Setti, she enticed to her home to discuss a potential husband Chanchuli wanted Setti to meet. No such luck for her. Instead, she was drugged into a stupor and murdered and dismembered with an axe. Uh, Here's the rest from the uh, confessions. I threw the pieces into a pot, added seven kilos of caustic soda, which I had bought to make soap, 
and stirred the whole mixture until the pieces dissolved in a thick, dark mush that I poured into several buckets and emptied in a nearby septic tank. As for the blood in the basin, I waited until it had coagulated, dried it in the oven, ground it and mixed it with flour, sugar, chocolate, milk and eggs, as well as a bit of margarine, kneading all the ingredients together. I made lots of crunchy tea cakes and served them to the ladies who came to visit, though Giuseppe and I also ate them. The other two women were lured to Cianciulli's home with similar promises. The fate of her wealthiest victim, Virginia Carciopo, whose bank account she also plundered, was uh, perhaps the most gruesome. She ended up in the pot like the other two. Her flesh was fat and white. When it had melted, I added a bottle of cologne. And after a long time on the boil, I was able to make some most acceptable creamy soap. I gave bars to neighbors and acquaintances. The cakes, too, were better. That woman was really sweet. Though never apologizing for the crime, Sanchuli pled guilty and received a 30-year prison sentence, the last three years of which she spent in an asylum. Almost as strange as this story is a bizarre 1977 black comedy based on the case called, in uh, English release, Black Journal, after Chanchuli's memoir, I would assume. The film's Italian, but it has quite the international cast with the uh, always uh, hapless Shelley Winters cast as the uh, uh, soap and tea cake enthusiast and the three female victims played in drag by two lesser-known Italian actors and Max von Sydow, all of whom also play cops investigating the case. That's right, Max von Sydow in drag. And it's a musical, or at least there are quite a few songs, including this, the lovely title number with which I'll leave you. I hope everyone's been enjoying our show and that you might have the opportunity to share uh, episodes with friends or even better to leave a review wherever you listen. These really help us out even if they're just a star reading or a short sentence. We haven't gotten that many recently, so uh, think about it. Um, as I mentioned at the top of the show, these episodes only keep coming out because of the support of our Patreon subscribers. When you donate, you're contributing toward the more than 100 hours of work that are put into each show. Pledge commitments begin at $1, can be edited at any time. Those subscribing at the $4 level or higher now receive a short extra episode in the uh, marvelous and rare format we provided a sample of back in September. We've also added a uh, bone and sickle candle featuring the skeletal remains of St. Notburga, as well as two different mystery kits, each one with uh, unique offerings. And we still offer my Krampus book on the show soundscapes that you hear in the background. I want to thank our new patrons, Anna of Amsterdam, uh, Summer Cacciotti, Professor D. V. Valls, Neil Haley, Nathan Mulroy, Clary McGuire, Hanbill, and Amanda. And thanks to Shino Tenshi for upping their pledge. 
If you haven't yet, you might want to visit our website, boneandsickle.com. There you'll find links to our Patreon, Facebook group, Twitter, and Instagram, along with show notes with links to uh, material in the program. The show is written and produced by me, Al Reidenauer, and Mrs. Carswell is played by Sarah Chavez, whose projects and writing related to death and culture you can track at sarah-chavez.com. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs> <laughs>